Don't you ever take for granted the privilege of getting to go to church. That's under attack. There is a reproach that comes with being a follower of Christ. We in America have tried to reshape the whole church so that it's palatable and likable in the culture. A church that is accepted well with the culture is usually not accepted well with Christ. The church is a fortress, and a fortress is strength. A fortress is might. Not only a center of defense, but a place of strategic planning and offense. Our God does not expect us to wait for the darkness to enclose around us. He expects us to take up His banner and fight the darkness with His light. You want to know what the biggest problem with America is? The wolf is this country. Gave in. Gave in to public pressure. Gave in to political correctness. One of the greatest curses this country has ever had to deal with is political correctness. Preparing the Christian to shine the light against the darkness of this world. Welcome to Our Mighty Fortress Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Miller, and welcome to the show. We have a very thought-provoking subject to cover today, but first, please go ahead and hit that follow or subscribe button on the podcast platform in which you're listening to us upon. We have several social media platforms with all sorts of material that you can listen to and read. You can check out our fan page on Facebook when you type in at Our Mighty Fortress. The page is growing more and more every day, and we'd love to have your support. You can also visit our website at OurMightyFortress.com. Lots of media there, articles, videos, and even our merch store where you can help support the work. If you do feel so motivated to donate to the work that we do here, feel free to do so through the website and our established PayPal link. If we've helped you in some way through our work, please tell us at ourmightyfortress at gmail.com. By following and supporting the podcast, you let me know that you care about the subjects that we discuss. Today, I would like to tell you about someone who is known as the hero of the Battle of Trafalgar. And this past week was the anniversary of that battle on October 21st, 1805. His name was Admiral Horatio Nelson, and he was in command of the British Navy during this tremendous event. If you were to drive through the city of Westminster in London, you'd actually see this man's monument of remembrance in the center of one of those city squares. Interestingly enough, what made Admiral Nelson great in man's eyes was also his greatest weakness and downfall. He had LGS or what is called Little God Syndrome, and this got worse and worse as his career progressed. We're going to analyze the events in the life and career of Admiral Nelson, to include another battle which he's famous for before Trafalgar. What took place at that battle really becomes relevant towards the end of his life, and we'll talk about that. We'll then bring it to its grand culmination with his final battle, This is going to be more than just a historical biography of a man that found his place in history because there are very powerful lessons to learn from this man's life, not only of what makes a great leader, but will also destroy one as well. We'll also analyze Nelson's position before God and the irony of his rebellion. 
I believe you'll be greatly helped from these lessons as we analyze our own lives before God. With that introduction, let's get right into this. The story of Admiral Horatio Nelson begins with a lower middle-class family in England. This is significant because his title and leadership later on was not granted to him due to his family's wealth or status. One of the more famous men in England's history came from a nobody family. His mother died when he was young, and that was something that he would mourn his entire life. It gave him this this need of a motherly love, and, and this would actually affect his marriage relationships outside the military. His father allowed him to join the British military at the young age of 12, and by the age of 17, he would see action on more than 120 occasions, sailed three oceans, almost died twice due to the tropical fever in West Indies and from malaria in India, and he was living a man's life before he was even a grown man. He was just a kid. Because of his grand impressions and his exploits, he was given the rank of full captain by the age of 21. That's astounding. Getting full command of a ship so young was unheard of at that time, and this would only further Nelson's ambition. That ambition took him to be the overall commander of British naval forces in the West Indies by the age of 28. His commanders labeled him as vain, ruthless, and impetuous. <laughs> he had this lust for glory, and he sought it at every chance that he could. He was also not a very moral man, though he claimed to believe in God. We'll talk more about that later. And as we progress, we're going to see who he actually loved more. You have to think as to why such a man would even get promoted. And why was he given charge over so much? It was because everything he touched ended up with success. And he had the respect and admiration of all the sailors that followed him. He was a man that led from the front. And he chose to set the example for his men. He did this as a junior officer as well as when he attained the rank of admiral. This wasn't commonplace in the military at the time. Nelson was also a major believer in small unit leadership. And this was really key in many of his battles. It was huge, actually. Really, really huge. What this means is that he allowed the officers under him to be able to make decisions as they deemed fit to move their ships or soldiers in a way to further the mission and win the battle. They didn't need constant commands from Nelson in order to move or do what they needed to do. That's a huge thing, actually. You don't have to constantly wait from orders up top before you can even do anything. You can just move and, and handle business right away. We do this in our American military today, but this was a pretty big thing in Nelson's time. First, he would bring all of his captains to a meeting before the battles, and he would discuss tactics. This was something that admirals typically didn't do because... They wanted to receive all of the glory for the battle as they would send signals from their flagship uh, as things commenced. Nelson's men, on the other hand, were given the plan and expectations as well as the freedom to act in battle. Nelson understood that the military 
needed to be flexible and maneuverable in order to win the battle. That was how he, he thought to himself he could achieve such glory. It was that type of leadership that allowed him to chase the French fleet and pin them in what was called the Battle of the Nile in Egypt. One of his captains pulled off a brilliant maneuver to allow the French to be rendered impotent, while Nelson sailed directly at the French flagship. He blew the lead French ship to pieces, and because the French didn't have a decentralized leadership, the rest of the fleet ended up surrendering, <laughs> which is ironic. Winning this battle made Admiral Nelson an absolute hero in England because he really stuck it to Napoleon, who was the leader in France at this time. And if you know anything about the Napoleonic Wars um, and all the events that transpired with that, it was, it was really something. He now not only had the title and position that he wanted, but now he had the fame where everyone knew who he was when he walked by. This would not come without some cost, though, because he was maimed from many of the battles in which he participated. He lost his sight in one of his eyes in the Battle of Corsica. His stomach was scarred at the battle at Cape St. Vincent. He lost one of his arms only inches below the shoulder in the Battle of Tenerife. He would also suffer another head wound in the battle that took place at the Nile, he often made fun of himself with his missing arm and the stub that he called a fin and, and all that was left. He said, I am Lord Nelson. Look at my fin. <laughs> That's pretty funny, actually. That being said, when he walked down the British streets, he was known by all, especially by these wounds, which made him quite the celebrity. He loved the fame and the glory before the Battle of the Nile. But after, the little god syndrome really kicked into overdrive. I'll explain more why about that later. But let's move on to his final battle. It was just after Nelson's 47th birthday when there were reports that Napoleon's fleet had been spotted. The English geared up to engage in what many would think that it would be the final battle at sea against the French. The time came where Admiral Horatio Nelson was called up to lead the English fleet, and he knew his time had come. It was said that he had a very strong premonition that this was the battle in which he was going to lose his life. He had his coffin made during this time, and it wasn't just made with any sort of wood. He made it with the timbers of the French flagship that he blew up during the Battle of the Nile. <laughs> He said to the carpenter fashioning it, quote, put those brass plates on the coffin and get it ready. I may need it, end quote. Isn't that something? He wanted to be buried in what he considered to be his greatest victory at that time. You really have to consider how much he really thought about himself in doing this. I mean, it's quite astounding. I can only imagine the situation after the Battle of the Nile where he, he goes to the remains of the French flagship and he tells one of his sailors, Hey, go get those boards. I'm going to need those one day. <laughs> that must have been something to hear. He arrived at Port Smith to meet up with the fleet, and he had this strong sense of destiny. 
he was greeted with a throng of people and some were even holding up their babies so he could like kiss them and bless them. It's like he's like, <laughs> it's like what we expect, you know, presidents of the United States to do today. Kiss some babies, wave, you know, shake hands, <laughs> as they say. Before he boarded his ship, which was called Victory, he turned to his officer next to him and said, quote, I had their hurrahs before, but I have their hearts now, end quote. That night, he brought all of his captains uh, under him to dinner on a ship where he would discuss the tactics of the battle. He had long thought about what he would do if he were to finally meet the French fleet in some sort of final battle. He would call this particular tactic the Nelson Touch. <laughs> Not that that's vain or anything, right? As he expounded upon his plan, it was said that his captains were to have been in shock but utterly amazed at his brilliance. His plan would be something that would have never been tried before uh, up to his current time in naval warfare. Normally in fleet battles, ships would just line up and pass each other while firing their cannons broadside. This would continue until ships were either knocked out of the fight or the losses would just be great on both sides. But that was the problem. Losses were huge. Nelson thought of a different approach, a daring and dangerous one, but one that he might just pull off. As the French would line up their ships to anticipate the British lining up theirs, Nelson would instead arrange his ships in two parallel columns at a 90-degree angle sailing directly at the French line. The goal was to cut the enemy fleet into three parts as the two fleets came together. Admiral Nelson would lead the first column uh, on his ship, Victory, and spearhead the enemy fleet. As they were coming, they were receiving fire, but they couldn't respond because they're coming in at this frontal angle. Nelson's ship did receive quite a bit of damage as they approached, and there was this long drag of time in which it seemed as though his men were getting nervous and uh, had a lot of anxiety. So Nelson went up and down the firing lines, encouraging his men. Now that is some leadership. He sent up flag signals to go up to the other English ships with the message, quote, England expects every man to do his duty, end quote. All of the men on the English ships erupted with a shout and cheer that could be heard for miles. His men admired him and would follow him to the pit of Hades. English ships started receiving damage, but the French couldn't sink them due to being at the difficult angle. As the ships were about to meet in battle, Nelson turned to the officer next to him, Captain Blackwood, and said, quote, God bless you, Blackwood. I shall never speak to you again. End quote. He still felt as though this was the battle in which he was going to die. Nelson was asked to cover his admiral stars or his rank on his collar so the enemy couldn't target him specifically. He responded, quote, In honor I gained them, and in honor I will die with them. The victory then spearheaded the French line and went directly at the French flagship. He knocked the flagship out of the fight so it would cause confusion among the French captains. They didn't have the use of the small unit leadership like Nelson had taught his men. Then they had got locked up with another French ship and there were boarding parties with men in battle all around. 
There were exploding timbers and musket balls flying everywhere. A French sniper at the top of the ship's mast hit Nelson, and the musket ball tore through his chest and his lung, paralyzing him. Nelson turned to his captain and said, quote, I believe they've done it at last. He was taken down below deck as the battle raged above, and he lived for three and a half hours after that, long enough to hear that the battle was won. He was hailed as a national hero, and his body was brought home. He was buried in St. Paul's Cathedral, and there was a 10,000-troop procession. His casket sat upon a horse-drawn funeral car shaped like his ship, the Victory. Admiral Horatio Nelson's military achievements were unbelievable, to which he did receive England's highest honors. This honor made a much darker side of Nelson be exposed and was also a stain upon his leadership. Now if we've seen the man for his military glory, let's see him as a man. I want to rewind a bit well before the Battle of Trafalgar and after he suffered that head injury on the Nile. He went to the city of Naples in Italy, and that is where he would meet his mistress, Emma Hamilton. She was the wife of the British ambassador to the kingdom of Naples, William Hamilton. When Nelson arrived to that city, he was hailed as a king, and this seriously drove him further into his LGS, or his little god syndrome. During this time, there was a rebellion in Naples to overthrow the royalty loyal to the English. After some chaos and some back and forth, these rebels had been given peaceful terms to surrender, but Nelson orchestrated, and now it was said that he didn't do it specifically by command, but he did orchestrate and allow all of those men to be hung from the mass of ships, and then their bodies were thrown out to sea so they couldn't have Christian burials. This was clearly murder and against British military protocol. This would be a stain upon his record before the British commanders, and he'd be chastised for it. Nelson would eventually leave Naples with both William and Emma Hamilton and come back to England after much controversy amongst the public because everybody knew what was going on. William would die shortly thereafter, but Nelson would keep Emma to himself. The problem was, was that Nelson was already married to another woman for years. Nelson would abandon his wife and then try to marry Emma. The English church had some intestinal fortitude and wouldn't allow such a disgrace. And if it wasn't for his military brilliance, they would have thrown him out of the military. They would eventually have a daughter, and he did love that little girl very dearly. During this time, Nelson would also be a very vocal opponent against abolishing slavery in the British Empire. That political battle was raging at the time, with William Wilberforce leading the way. In an 1805 letter, Nelson voiced his opposition against what he called the, quote, damnable and cursed doctrine of Wilberforce. He was very much in favor of the colonial system in the West Indies, and he had gained much from it. His love of fame and glory was insatiable and would be the driving force as to why he was so fearless and bold in his tactics. He said, quote, 
my greatest happiness is to serve my gracious king and country, and I am envious only of glory, for if it be a sin to covet glory, I am the most offending soul alive, end quote. In all of his military accomplishments and leadership, Nelson was utterly a debauched man that sought for what he could not have. He wanted to be glorified as a little G God among the people, and it almost seemed in his eyes that he could achieve such. He was the perfect example of what Jesus Christ said in the book of Matthew, chapter 16 and verse 26, quote, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? End quote. Nelson was famous among the people and among the military at the time. This is true. His accomplishments, you know, are just in short sections of history books. And he gets a bronze statue in a London square. All of that to achieve what? This is actually not a unique problem in man's history with covetousness and pride. Ambitious men can easily fall into the trap of having the little God syndrome. The problem starts when they start to love the success and fall in love with themselves. If you were to ask Admiral Nelson if he was a Christian, he would claim to be so. Meanwhile, he abandoned his wife, his mistress is at the house, and he was a proud and very arrogant man. That had nothing to do with the one true and living God. Christianity was just a national emblem to him, but not a personal faith. He said he believed in God, but it wasn't the God of the Bible. The man was as proud as anyone, and given what he was able to accomplish in his life, it was quite impressive. One could argue that, hey, it was his pride that helped him win those battles. But what is that before God? Plenty of righteous men have gained victories through the power of God and not taken Nelson's route. The pride was just exemplified in Nelson's death as he had made his casket out of the French flagship. I mean, come on. As I said previously, I, I'm not sure that would be my first thing that I would want to do after winning a massive battle and there's losses on... You've you got to care for your man and you got to talk to your commanders. My first thought would not be, hey, sailor, go get me those boards because I'm going to make a coffin out of it one day. That really tells you a lot about his way of thinking and his character. His story is truly amazing when you look at the accomplishments, but it's sad at the same time. He was the example of a lower middle class man who literally, he made his way up the socioeconomic ladder off of his personal gains and accomplishments. And really, in the end, you get a paragraph or two in history books. All of that, for what? His whole life, he had searched for acceptance, and that overwhelmed him. From his childhood of being unwanted, to constantly pursuing after the next best thing, it drove him into moral depravity. When we do look at this remarkable story, it leaves us with this feeling of how we really compare to this man before God. 
in the beginning of the podcast, I said there was very valuable lessons that we could all learn from Admiral Horatio Nelson, some positive and others negative. It is so easy for us to aspire to be great in our own eyes, as well as the eyes of our peers. But what is this before God? Our little God syndrome means nothing. Pride and arrogance have shown over and over again in history to destroy men and women's lives. We too can fall into the trap of acquiring this little God syndrome and start to think of ourselves more than we should. Jesus said in the book of Matthew, chapter 18, and verse 4, quote, Whosoever, therefore, shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He would also say in chapter 23 and verse 12, quote, And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. End quote. Can God use proud and arrogant men to achieve his purpose? He can, and he has in history. But all of those men had met their judgment for their pride. King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was one such example in the book of Daniel. The truth is that when we're lifted up in pride, what we are essentially doing is making ourselves as little g-gods. We think we know better. We think we are greater than God. Who should have gotten the glory in the first place? The almighty God, not us. The book of James chapter 4 and verse 6 says, quote, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. End quote. When we succeed and thrive at something in our lives, the temptation is there to acquire the little God syndrome. It can be even from some sort of small achievement in the workplace or even a raise or something we've done for another person even. We must strive to humble ourselves before God and resist what comes so natural to us. And that is our pride. It comes so naturally to think of ourselves as little g-gods. Admiral Nelson's story is a very powerful example of a man who gained the whole world but lost his own soul. Do not be like him, but follow after Christ's words in humility. I want to thank you for listening, and be sure to follow us on the podcast media, Please take a look at our website, ourmightyfortress.com, and subscribe for more updates. Stay tuned next time for more great content, and remember to find your refuge and strength in our mighty fortress.